I've been at the Fit World Congress in Kashkais again, and the voices you hear in this special Media Voices podcast episode were recorded at the event. But before we head off to the beautiful Portuguese Riviera, I need to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Disrupt. Disrupt powers the Fit World Media Congress and is the organiser and host of Media Makers Meet MX3. That's an event dedicated to specialist media, scheduled for Berlin the 7th and 8th of February 2024. Disrupt was founded late in 2021 by Cobus Hale and John Shafley, formerly of FIP. The company produces specialist in-depth reports as well as events. We'll hear a little bit more later about what Disrupt are up to from John. Before we get going, please forgive the audio quality in some places in this episode. Most of it was recorded in a big, busy auditorium, in corridors and corners, and in rooms packed with delegates. So, the sense at Kashkai this year, despite a general acknowledgement that times are undoubtedly tough, was a sense that there are still very real opportunities for world media. Julia Boyle, FIP Chair and Head of International Media at National Geographic, set the scene for 400 delegates in the room. She opened by introducing a special delegation to the Congress from Ukraine and highlighting a Ukrainian government initiative to bring a host of government services into a single app, a digital innovation rolled out under the most difficult circumstances imaginable. Thank you for being here in person. I welcome all our 43 countries here today. A lot of what we're going to be talking about today revolves around our continuous transformation in media. And speaking about transformation and disruption, allow me to start with a story. About two weeks ago, I attended an event in Washington, DC, where I witnessed a tremendous digital transformation. It was a true digital revolution, I think, unfolding in a country that is being disrupted by a harrowing war. The presentation was by the Vice Prime Minister of uh, Ukraine and the Minister of Digital Transformation of Ukraine, Mikhailo Fedorov. The event was unveiling of the government-created app, uh, an app that is a one-stop shop for over 120 services that the, typically you would get only in standing in lines and getting through a huge bureaucracy. Today, in Ukraine, in a country that is fighting for its survival and nationhood, when you have a baby, you can register the baby and get a birth certificate from one app. You can register your small business. You can get your construction permit. Today, 20 million Ukrainians, about 50% of the population, is trusting and using the app. So why am I telling you this story? Because I think it demonstrates very well that even amidst a most harrowing disruption that you know, a country can have or people can have, innovation is still possible and it lays foundation uh, for the future despite what's happening today. This is why really FIP is putting so much muscle behind diversity and inclusion because uh, innovation uh, is one thing, but inclusivity is actually driving innovation, and innovation um, you know, comes from 
the opportunities that we get from around the world. And I think FT put it very succinctly recently that today we live in an era of reverse innovation, which means that in 20th century, the Western companies thought that innovation starts in the West and that it's bestowed to the developing countries. But that assumption was challenged when M-Pesa, one of the first mobile banking apps, was created in Kenya and then was copied elsewhere around the world. And since then, innovation is coming everywhere. That is why we're putting so much behind inclusion in FIP in order to bring those practices here to us. AI is, of course, already appending our business models by keeping away the traffic from our websites and raising big concerns about intellectual property infringement, perpetuation of historic biases, and false information. The speed of it is unprecedented. And it took Spotify 150 days to get to uh, uh, 1 million users. It took Instagram 75 and GPT only five days. We can tremendously improve our productivity by using some of the models that can help us in analysis and discovery of topics for our stories. But the best stories, of course, as we know, we will be created by talent and creators like you. As you can imagine, conference speakers returned again and again to AI, both as a threat and an opportunity. But Andrei Jovchenko, CEO of the media in Ukraine, spoke about a more direct existential threat and media resilience, specifically his staff's fight to get magazines and newspapers to readers in the middle of a war. My name is Andrei Dovichenko, I'm CEO and owner of Border Media in Ukraine. Uh, with our print and digital products, we reach 4 million uh, readers monthly. I would like to take this opportunity to share with you some information on how we are now living and working in Ukraine after 470 days of full-scale Russian aggression. When I was preparing my presentation, I had to think um, really hard about what I would say and what I would not tell you today. And finally, I decided not to turn on the sound of air siren that we Ukrainians hear every single day. Um, because, firstly, because Harvard scientists have proven that the post-traumatic stress has an irreversible effect on the brain. And secondly, since the beginning of the war, our Ukrainian brains have heard the, it, this horrible sound for more than 25,000 times. I also decided not to talk about my personal experience of surviving and parting with my family, that has, was forced to leave to another country. Similarly to 5 million Ukrainians now in Europe and 7 million Ukrainian people who have left their homes and remain in Ukraine with the status internally displaced persons. Instead, I decided just to say thank you. Thank you everyone who has helped and opened their hearts and homes to Ukraine. I definitely do want to share with you some personal stories about business survival as well as national media sustainability trends in Ukraine. 
During the very first days of the full-scale invasion, our warehouse was hit by Russian artillery. Unfortunately, two of my colleagues, the warehouse workers, were blocked in there and had to hide and survive there, having no possibility to run away. Luckily, they survived, and now our warehouse is working again. We restarted the deliveries of, the, of magazines to the newsstands at the point of sale again in May 2022. I'm really proud that Buda Media was the first publisher in Ukraine to restart printing magazines after February 24th. So I'm also here as a representative of the Ukrainian Media Business Association, which, which united 600 publishing brands from all, all the regions of the country, reaching more than 20 million Ukrainians. One case study of another local media brand and demonstrate an ordinary day in the life of one local newspaper in Kharkiv region, Eastern Ukraine. In the morning they are coming to, to their office or what is left what was left of it. In the afternoon they received the emergency assistance from, from our association, a generator which arrived right during the air raid signal. In the evening they turned on the generator because the air attack damaged the local power grid. At the night they handed over the addition to the printer, working from a generator and power bank. And this kind of action movie just is just one case of hundreds happening in the Ukraine every single day. The main challenges of Ukrainian media entities are lack of cash, missing assets because they are destroyed or they are on the occupied territories, and the missing knowledge on how to create a profitable digital business. For the knowledge, uh, we uh, have uh, organized uh, seminars uh, where the, about 100 publishers were attending, uh, where the well-known media expert present here, the Juan Senior, uh, and uh, some, uh, some colleagues from uh, Financial Times, have shared with us their valuable knowledge in ideas on how to innovate and restructure business in times of crisis have, have been essential for, for all publishers, in, in, not only in Ukraine, of course. Thanks to those measures, we can say that more or less 300 journalist jobs have been saved and uh, last but not least, 20 million Ukrainians have been able to, ac to access uh, journalistic product. So, from this stage in Kashkai, I would like to thank all the generous donors who have supported us in these difficult times. Just before Andrei spoke, I managed to catch up with another member of the Ukrainian delegation. She told me about the enormous changes her team had had to make to keep working and the very personal sacrifice made by one of her colleagues. Uh, my name is Anastasia Rava. I am editor-in-chief of Nespresso TV channel, Ukrainian media outlet, uh, which included uh, not only TV channel, uh, we also have a website, we also have a very successful YouTube channel with uh, 
2 million subscribers. So how has your job changed? That must have changed incredibly over the last 18 months or so. Of course, we have a lot of changes when we started. We had our office in Kyiv almost for 10 years, Espresso TV, and we also had small studio in Lviv. We know that this full was started and we have plan A, plan B, plan C, and we decided very quickly to relocate all our staff in Lviv, because Lviv uh, is more safety uh, city than Kiev, for example, but not safety too much, of course, because we don't have any uh, safe places in Ukraine. It's not possible to feel, to feel uh, safe in different cities, and um, for one year, we live in in another city and uh, uh, try to uh, try to talk to world to Ukrainians how we survive and how um, about uh, um, our armed for forces because we honor it about them. They really do a huge job. My colleague, uh, video director of Espresso TV, Vasil Yaborsky, when the full scare was started, he. Um, uh, he joined it uh, like a volunteer to armed forces, armed forces of Ukraine, and uh, became a soldier. And he was killed by Russian in uh, autumn 20, uh, 2022. And um, it's very important uh, to me, to my colleagues, uh, which everyone knows about him, about his, um, about his story. In the face of stories like those we heard from Ukraine, worrying about the rise of AI can seem inconsequential. But of course, at a media conference, it was on everyone's mind. And in presenting this year's edition of his annual media innovations report, Juan Senor zeroed in almost immediately on AI. So, um, once again, we're here with the book. It's been over a decade uh, presenting this book, and it's been fascinating to indeed engage with all of you this year in particular in getting our heads around what it's indeed a watershed year. It's a massively transformative year. We almost decided to do half the book about AI. We're firm believers that print is eternal, it will never die, and great examples of how print is indeed growing in many markets, uh, surprisingly, but very much based on fandom and very much based on hobbies. Uh, people still like and really will pay and a premium price for that experience if it's unique, if it's tailored, if it's niche. But as I said, we almost made the book monothematic this year. Because generative AI is the most transformative innovation we all face. And look, it's not about digital transformation. It's about the transformation of digital. It is that deep. It's time for AI. It's time for AI media first company. And I know we've heard, uh, you know, digital first, and then it was mobile first, and then social first, what have you. But this is a transformation of digital. So you really need to begin to rethink of your business in terms of the profound impact that this is going to have on all of us here, starting now. And we do not want to miss this train. For many of you, maybe the last train in digital. We miss the social train. We miss the mobile train. Some people miss the search train. 
let's not miss this train. And this is the innovation to get your head around. We need to understand AI. Right now, 23, understand it. Don't fight it. Reflecting the straitened times we live in, AI was not the only disruptive force on the agenda. Advice on how to cope with tough economic conditions featured heavily, and what better place than Argentina to get some encouragement for coping with a highly volatile business environment. So I'm Agustino Fontevecchia, Digital Director for Editorial Perfil, which is one of the largest publishers in Argentina and Brazil. We went from being a print magazine company that has a newspaper less than 10 years ago. Today, we are a multimedia organization with print magazines, print newspaper, a large digital operation with day-to-day -day newspaper that competes with the largest uh, newspapers in Argentina in terms of uh, digital websites. And, and, and also we've launched several uh, broadcast TV channels and the radio. So we are uh, trying to occupy as many spaces as we can. Okay, but you're expanding in a, a set of economic conditions that's maybe not what we would consider to be ideal, is that right? No, absolutely. I mean, in the past eight years, inflation has gone from 30 to 120% on an annual basis. The peso dollar exchange rate went from 9 to 500. Of course, the purchasing power of the people is going down. Argentina has at least one decade. The past decade has been just constant crisis with bouts of aggressive crisis and bouts of relative calm. And it's a country where there's no access to credit. So either you decide to look for opportunity by brute force, or you can decide to, you know, become a smaller and smaller and smaller organization if you want to prioritize profits. So we stopped prioritizing profits. We just decided, okay, screw it. We got to go for everything because if we don't do this, we're going to become less relevant and eventually we're gonna we're gonna have to shut down because the operation won't make sense so having that mission of saying no, no no we're gonna remain relevant as a not only as a journalistic powerhouse but as a company and so that forced us out of our comfort zone it's not great business if you will if you just look at the bottom line we think it might be in the future but we think it's the only way to get to that future so that's where we're going i guess one of the problems in the environment you're describing as even if you're profitable, your profits could be disappearing because of nothing that you've done, just because of economic circumstances. Right. It's economic circumstance and it's the eternal crisis of our industry, right? So, you know, there are changing habits that are uh, people are not consuming media in the same way as before. Other actors that are, you know, taking a lot of the ad uh, spend out there. Um, a lot of people, the subscriptions where they used to pay maybe magazines, maybe newspapers now, you know, you're going to compete with Netflix and with Spotify. So at that endemic crisis to our industry, it's been going on for 25 years, at least 30 years, to the set of situation, the circumstances of Argentina. You know, anybody in their sane mind would say, it doesn't make sense to do business in Argentina. So why do we do it? Well, we're from there. So it's where, for us, it makes sense to be there. And, you know, many times it might be difficult to explain to an outside investor uh, and that's why they don't invest. So you have to figure out a way. I mean, at the same time, I was hearing a, a panel here before on the, the CEO of Burda Ukraine. You know, why would you continue publishing magazines in, the, in Ukraine? Well, they're doing it and they're pushing forward. And, and I think, of course, that's a much more complex circumstance than, than the one we're living where it's just economic crisis. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's, there's something about willpower 
uh, behind it all. So inflation in the UK at the moment is running about 10%, and everyone is panicking and, you know, really sees a problem. And it's hard for people. Coming from where you're coming from, what advice would you give publishers? I think that it's key that you have to be flexible and creative in everything that you're doing. So for us, this situation I described before has put us in, in conditions in which sometimes we don't have enough money to make either pay salaries, pay providers, pay someone else. And in Argentina in general, at certain moments, the payments chain breaks down. So everybody's not having enough money. So for example, you have to have the flexibility to say, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to deal with my employees getting pissed off? How am I going to deal with the, the providers not giving me the supplies that I need? And you will find a way. You will find a way. So you have to be flexible. And then the other thing that I think is key is that you need to be resilient and you need to move fast. 10% for a, an economy that's used to 2% is a lot. You know, 120% for us, it's a lot. But this has been in crescendo over the past several years. So we're kind of used to it. Doesn't mean that doesn't make it all right. But uh, I would say that don't, you have to keep your eye on the ball, absolute focus, but be, be flexible. Forget the textbooks. It's easy to get the impression that only the biggest players were at the FIP Congress, but in among the media multinationals, there were also some very interesting independent publishers. My name is Catalina Morales. I am one of the founder editors of the Polyglot magazine. Polyglot magazine is a literary magazine. We have published more than 55 uh, languages and we're focused on literally being a platform for writers, emerging writers and established writers that write in different languages that are not English and French, that are the, pretty much the ones that are mainstream. We publish poetry, short stories, prose, essays, just giving an avenue to other writers to be able to publish their work. In total, you've published 55 different languages. Yes, wow. including indigenous languages. So tell me some of those languages. <laughs> oh my God, everything. We have published Spanish, Tagalog, Hindi, uh, everything. Like There are some of them that I can't even pronounce because they're indigenous. So one of our previous uh, issues, we actually last year had two issues on a row focused on indigenous languages. I'm guessing you don't speak 55 languages. <laughs> How do you deal with those different languages? Well, uh, we are a quite diverse board of, of editors. So between all of us, I think that we are, we, between all of us, we speak around 12 languages. So we're able to kind of curate the content. But the beauty of this kind of articles or the things that we publish is that it's art, right? So it's very subjective to say if it's good or not. And sometimes we just go with being able to provide a platform to a very specific language that has never been published in any other medium because it's not represented. So who are your readers? Our readers are polyglots, people who speak are, and read more than one language and usually are writers and readers, the ones that read us. How do you find them? To be honest, we, we have been found by them. When we launched the first uh, edition, we never expected that we were going to have such a response. And we just put the word out, and it was just literally word of mouth that we were launching this magazine, and suddenly we have more than what we were expecting. You're in print, yes. but you also have social media and website and the whole digital thing? Yes, we have the whole thing. We actually publish on demand. So we are digital, and you can get, um, you buy it, then you can get it printed. 
but we also have social media. We are on Twitter, we are on Instagram, and you can visit us on our website, thepolyglotmagazine.com. One of the things for literary magazines is to actually find the middle point of being profitable so we can sustain our, our magazine throughout time. We are understanding how we can implement passion and business at the same time that is needed for sustainability So and the relationship. But I think the most important thing, at least for this Congress in specific, is that the amount of distributors that are open to carry us. And right now, I'm very happy to say that we're going to be available in 17 countries, thanks to a deal that we closed with a distributor. Literary magazines have to come to this kind of Congress. We don't do this. I have only found one other literary magazine. So we need to come. Whether it's literary magazines or other niche titles, small publishers definitely added to the mix at this year's Congress. And given me his thoughts on the two days, Flashes and Flames Colin Morrison spotlighted the lessons that can be learned from niche publishers and the communities that they build. If you measure it by how many times this or that word or sentence has been mentioned, then you'd have to say AI was the big thing because AI is being talked about so readily by almost everyone in the whole of the world. Uh, and there's a lot of angst about it and not much knowledge. People are worried about something they don't know much about and I don't know much about it either. But I think if you, if you go past that, um, there are certainly all kinds of fears about the economy and you know, perhaps about climate change as it might affect businesses and things like that. But there's a, there's a very real sense in which FIP, which started after all as a magazine publishers conference, is now a proper media conference with all kinds of people. And we all use the word media, but it's a very broad term and there's a very diverse group of people. And yet somehow this conference, 450 or something people, manages to be a real group and a real community of people who have some shared interests but a lot of interest in 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 these broad subjects and i think in a way that helps for me define you know where the promise of media really is i think in communities that you can define you can put your arms around you can get to know it's the opposite you might say from mass market but i think that's where the best future of media is, particularly for people who came from newspapers and magazines like many of these did. One of the words, I guess, reflecting what you're talking about is niche. There was a lot of talk about niche products. Yes, I feel strongly that, um, that that does describe an attractive kind of strategy. Of course, there are niches and niches, and some people would describe as niche something with a, you know, a few hundred thousand people in a town. But I think that's right. I mean, if you take my little flashes and flames, you know, I'm catering for a very narrow niche of people, and I'm, most of the people who subscribe, even though they're paying me real money, you know, I do know. And um, it's knowing an audience as best you can that helps you manage the community and helps you really not only get the most out of it, but give the most to it. If you define niche as being that measurable, touchable, reachable, then I think that's exactly where it should be. And it isn't that you can't make money if you're Google or if you're running YouTube or Facebook or whatever, because we know those people make a lot of money, but that's not media as we define it. And it's not what people who call themselves publishers would be any good at doing. The other thing I thought was interesting, one of the questions you were asked at the end was about revenue diversification. 
And is it a danger that you have too many revenue streams? It's easy to feel, whatever company, whether you're in media or anything else, it's easy to feel that loads of different revenue streams offer you some security when one thing's up, another's down, and you get loads of ways of earning money, and somehow that's economic stability. And, and I'm sure there are companies that would demonstrate that very well to us. However, it's very difficult to manage like that. You can be lucky and have six revenue streams, four of which you don't know anything about, and you just answer the phone and take the money. Life isn't often like that. And you have to, you have to start from the point of view of having a single driven purpose for what you're doing and how you're going to fund it and how you're going to run it. And, you know, that might be... Uh, uh, a subscription sort of community, or it might be a, a, a free publication or a free service of some kind uh, funded by advertising. But I think you've got to start from that point, even if you then have ancillary and other revenue sources. If you don't do that, I think you run the risk of making the mistakes that still print magazine and uh, newspaper publishers don't own up to uh, in the sort of immediate period around the, the arrival of the internet which is that advertising had become so good and so easy and so plentiful that they forgot about readers. They didn't care much. They had as many fringe readers as you could find because that gave you more ads money. Uh, you didn't really ask readers for much money for copy sales very often uh, because you didn't need to. And it goes on from there. And of course, uh, and then you say, well, probably they didn't, a lot of magazines and newspapers didn't care much whether readers had the content they wanted, and it certainly didn't affect the profits much. Uh, and then the shit hits the fan with the internet, and it all comes home. And, and of course, there's a question of timing, because it was very good and successful at one point, and then it wasn't. But I think if you want long-term success, you've got to be driven by a single thing. And for most people, that will be the readers, users, or viewers. And, and life is healthier, probably more satisfying, but steadier if you do that. To round out this episode, I spoke with Disrupt's John Shafley and I asked him how FIP's second congress in Portugal had gone. It's been really fabulous and the atmosphere has been, has been excellent. I think last year, last year was a, um, you know, it was a bit of a relief. We were coming out of COVID, nobody would seen everybody. So somebody described it yesterday as this is much more of a sort of business event. With some fun, with some fun. I think the final count's 427 in terms of delegate numbers, 43 countries. About 40% is MD, founder, um, you know, business owner, top execs, and then split decision makers across editorial content, uh, tech and marketing, really. So, so it's a really, really good split of people, a really good mix of people. And I think that's what adds to the event and conversations. You know, everybody's been very complimentary about the, about the, about the content and how it's been structured as well. So that you know, hopefully it's, it's almost impossible, but we've, we've tried to structure it so there aren't two things on the same subject on two different stages at the same time so people can do it but of course you know everything goes into the video library so anyone that's 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 a paid delegate gets access to that video library and anybody else can can purchase one off or multiple sessions so so you know nothing needs to get missed obviously this is now operated and powered as it says in the marketing by disrupt and uh, yeah we operate this on behalf of fit and with fip i think there was a sort of um, there was a need to move it around the world to represent the global audience, which is completely understandable and fair enough. I think for us and also moving it to an annual model, because this is the first time it's run two years back to back. Um, obviously, it was meant to do that in 2020. We all know what happened. Um, I think for us, it makes sense to 
come back to the same place. You know, we've we we we've got on with the suppliers, we know the place. And actually somebody said to me yesterday, it was so nice to land, I know it was so nice to come back. I know which bars I'm going to, I know I'm having <laughs> dinner, I know which hotel I want to stay at, I know where I'm gonna go at the weekend, you know. So that continuity thing's really good. And then the final minutes of the FIP twenty twenty three Congress, I couldn't resist the opportunity to ask John what was next. Oh please, give me a break, you know, let me have a think about it for a minute. Um Next firm event is uh, MX3, and MX3 is 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 Disrupt's key brand, and that's Media Makers Meet. We ran our first event in Berlin last October, which was incredibly successful. Very different format. It was a very different sort of vibe, and we want to continue with that. Uh, the tentative dates for that are the 7th and 8th of February next year. Uh, we're going to go back to Berlin again. Uh, we were thinking of Copenhagen and various other places, but you know we have, we have the lovely Bastion on the ground in Berlin, which helps us um, no end. It has a slightly different or, or more focused approach and, and it sort of pulls together that that specialist sector. We had people from 23 different countries and brought together different sort of communities and cultures and, and it was just really great to see people in that specialist and vertical sector. And we've got some pretty cool venues that we're that we're considering. I think we've I think we've settled on one, but um, yeah, there's some. It's it's just a great city, and just like Kashgar, everybody loves Berlin. I mean, who doesn't like a few days in Berlin? You know, some great content and some you know great things in the evening. We went for a food hall and stuff. So it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a really super brand for us, and 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 delivers a solution for its audience as well. And that's it from me at Phipps World Congress 2023. A huge thank you to Disrupt for sponsoring this episode. I hope I'll see you in Berlin. Maybe need to bring a slightly different wardrobe for Berlin in February. But until then, actually until next week on Media Voices, take care.